Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. I'm excited today to be joined by an old colleague of mine. We did a podcast ourselves that revolutionized uh, analytical podcasting, <laughs> I could say, with all, uh, I don't know, probably had like at least 15 listeners that were tuned in every single, every single week there. Uh, he is the editor-in-chief of Fantasy Labs, which is part of Action Network now. Matthew Freeman, how are you, my friend? Uh, I'm good. And by the way, we shouldn't sell short uh, what numbers numbers game did. Uh, it was that was a great podcast. You had some fantastic guests back in the day uh, that really, I think, started you in in the podcasting space. Uh, and just look at where you are now uh, in your eighth show, already having someone like me as a guest, which I should say, you are you are really scraping the bottom of the analytical barrel right now. If if from Mina Kimes the next week you are going to Matthew Friedman. No, this is this is the pinnacle. I was just building up. I was I was I was building up to to this point. And one thing, okay, I'll say about uh you know, people ask for career advice a lot when they talk about how to break in. Niche analytical podcasting may be a really good good career advice because we'd ask some people who were doing. I mean, we I'm trying to think of guys we had on. We had like Brian Burke on there. We had a bunch of people who worked for different organizations. Um, you know, not not within the NFL, but kind of these analytical organizations outside the NFL. And then after I'd done that one podcast, even though we didn't really get into any personal stuff, I didn't talk to him. It wasn't like we went out for coffee or anything like that. I would just hit these guys up afterwards asking yeah. about jobs and other things. And it was like a total different entree than if you're just coming cold off of the street to ask them. So that was actually a huge thing. So if anyone's I out there, niche that, I podcasting. Love that, podcast. that was that was a great podcast. One of the the favorite guests that we had on was Alok Patani. I think when he was with ESPN and I just I thought he was great. Like everything he said, I, I just remember thinking like, this guy is so smart and this information is solid gold. And I felt like you were able to find guests like that every week. Uh, and so I've really enjoyed this, uh, this podcast that you've started here uh, because I just imagine that each week you're going to bring on great people, especially the current guests right now. Especially that's what I said, like I said, we, we were building up to this and uh, now we have to carry it, though. We don't have a guest <laughs> we don't have a guest to bring in to bring actual like insights. But luckily, I have I, you're the expert. You're, you're playing the role of expert here today since um, I've been following what you've been doing. And obviously, there's a lot of stuff within Action Network, the fetting, the, the, the focus on betting and that side of things. I've had a few people on here. I mean, I had Rufus Peabody to talk about some of the betting stuff. I had Adam Levitan to talk about DFS stuff. I want to talk with you more about props. Now, I know that was kind of a, a bigger thing and a bigger focus of yours. Uh, we'll talk about the market and how difficult it is and, and all that sort of stuff as part of the process. So I, I want to kind of focus this around props, but then also bring in some details on news-wise what's going on, maybe the larger betting ecosystem, if that works. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into it. So first off, um, and we had a little conversation about this pre-taping, so maybe we'll talk about this a, a bit more, but there's a, whether prop betting is kind of quote-unquote real betting in a way, not that, obviously it's real, there, there are stakes involved, but th there was a conversation, a friend of the podcast, Rufus Peabody, and his podcast, Bet the Process, and um, I'll say acquaintance of the podcast, Jeff Ma was also, uh, they were talking in there and it was mostly Jeff making the point when he, he wants to book who he, who he calls like real gamblers on his show. And one of the, 
disqualifications that he mentioned was that, hey, if this guy's just betting props, then I don't want, or girl is just betting props, then I don't want them on the podcast because you really just can't get down enough money to be a serious better. What, what do you think about uh, that, that concept? I think he's right. And uh, I mean, I love that, that show each week, uh, listen religiously to, uh, to, to Jeff and Rufus and, you know, Rufus, uh, I, I wouldn't say that he started as a prop better, but that's one of the ways in which he really kind of broke into the mainstream and helped build his bankroll was that he was so profitable at props. And I think props are a really good way for someone who's kind of casual and wanting to get into betting to get into it, especially a lot of fantasy sports players, because, you know, we kind of tend to think about bets more in terms of, okay, how many yards is this guy going to get? Or is he going to score a touchdown or not? And so I think it's a natural avenue into bigger sports betting from fantasy sports. And that's how I got into sports betting. Uh, and so really, I started to build my bankroll in the earlier days by focusing almost exclusively on props. That said, because I did that, um, my ability to get down action pretty quickly got limited uh, at, at different sports books. Uh, and so Jeff is right that you really aren't able to sustain betting if you are betting only props. If you want to have a sustainable model, you have to balance your action a little bit where maybe half of it is on props and half of it is on sides and totals. Yeah, so there's just simply not enough avenues. Has that changed? I mean, there, there are more avenues available to people like via legalized betting within the states Uh, obviously there's offshore stuff which you know people have been doing for for a long time Um, has that helped or hurt or has it made really no difference as far as the availability of being able to get down well, I mean, obviously, the, the more books uh, out there, the better it is for everybody. And especially, uh, you know, with more books coming online and legal markets, I think it gives people a little more safety, a little more certainty to be dealing with a book that is, you know, above board. Um, that said, no matter where you are, you know, able to get down action, the process is basically the same in that if a book identifies you as someone who's able to beat them at props, pretty quickly you're you're going to be limited. And so it does help to have as many outs, as many books as possible, one, so that you can get the best line possible, but then two, so that you can spread your action around and you don't bang up any one book too quickly and then get your action limited. How, okay, so there's kind of this general understanding that the lines are less sharp. Um, Absolutely. How much of that? Yeah. How much of that do you think is uh, they don't they don't have a specialization in thinking about uh, this versus thinking about the things that they're taking more money on, or is it just it's just like impossible to have the correct lines on so many different options versus 32 teams having a correct side and a correct total on those, on those games. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's both. I think it's a combination of everything to where one, they just don't have, I don't want to say they don't have the expertise, but it's just not the way that their minds are oriented. Like we as fantasy sports players think about players all the time. It's not that I don't care what happens with the Cowboys, but in some way I almost care much more about what happens with Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb and all of the other like component parts of the Cowboys team more than I care about what happens with the Cowboys. And it's the same thing with all of the other players. And so 
you want to bet in an area where you actually might have an edge over a book. And this might be one of the true areas where we do have an edge. We are much more obsessed about player production than the lines makers are. So one, we actually might have an edge. Two, it is harder for them to balance all of these lines. It's hard enough for them to do it for teams and totals, but to break it down into individual players, it's almost impossible for them to set a really good line at first. Once the market starts to move it, then it can move it to a place that probably is pretty good. But by the time that has happened, the sharps would have already come in and taken the right side of it. So that's part of it. And then another part of it is because they can limit the action, they just don't care. Like for them, it's almost like a marketing tactic to get people in. And they just think of it as like a business expense that they have to incur in order to get people in the door so that eventually they become sports bettors on the bigger line items. Yeah, yeah, no, I think the marketing angle is key. Um, I mean, it's not to the level of, but it reminds me of some of the most uh, uh, annoying things that you'll see where it'll say, who will be the next co- like, I, they probably have There's probably props being shared on this now. Like, who'll be the next coach of the Jets? And it'll be um, like Sean McVay will be number one. It's <laughs> like, how does this even work? Because they're just trying to get people to go on there and bet these totally ridiculous. Pro- I mean, those are totally ridiculous, obviously, that, that no one really has any insight and they're just making up numbers for. But it starts to filter down further and further towards the player process, which, which become become more difficult. So I'll also say, because of the fact that the limits are so low, is there a lot of shaping and a feedback loop? Is is there as much shaping and a feedback loop as you would see in in sides? You know, in sides and totals, you have certain books who put things out earlier, who get information from sharp betters, which then shapes the line, and then everyone else kind of copies them. And then down the line, that will continue to to evolve. But when it evolves, there's this notion that the books are trying to balance out the money and this stuff, which is just really kind of not, not really how it works. They're trying to, they're trying to, you know, not have, because there's so much that, that can be put down on it. You don't want to have exposure on a bad line. So you're not just trying yeah. to, to balance the book. So I'm just trying for props. Is there that, that feedback loop to a, to a lesser degree where they're looking, they know who's sharp and they're figuring what are they betting? And then they're adjusting based upon that. Or is it a news based thing when they're adjusting these? I think it's a, a little bit of both. And so that the process that you outlined for sides and totals, you don't get that nearly to the same extent with, with props uh, for a few reasons. And one is, you know, with sides and totals, a, a book simply cannot afford to be too out of step with the rest of the market, or it will just massively increase its liability. <clears throat> and so because they're not taking as much money on props, it's not quite as big of a deal if they're out of line. And because they're not taking as much money, it's not nearly as important for them to set a good line right away. So they're not obsessively checking what's happening with the rest of the market. Uh, and because I think it's a little bit harder because it's not it's not what they focus on. It's a little bit harder for, for all of the books immediately to, to reach a consensus on where a line should be. So for uh, a side or a total, right, it's pretty easy. Even if the, the books weren't looking at what each other were doing, they would all come up with lines that are pretty close to each other. But for props, they don't, they don't do it. And they don't really bother to check all that much with what other people are doing because they're not taking enough money on it to make it worth their while. So the early lines, you can see sometimes like discrepancies of like 10 yards on some, and you know, like that can be a massive edge if you check this stuff 
when lines are released very early on. And, you know, a couple of years ago, when I was hardcore, just hammering props as much as I could doing it, like it was almost like uh, a second job. Uh, I was obsessively looking at lines when they were released, like refreshing on the computer, knowing that, okay, this book tends to release lines at 1230. This book tends to release lines at one, you know, but like line shopping, doing the whole thing. Uh, And if you do that, uh, you you could make pretty decent money on it, but it, it's not sustainable. But you know, hey, you, you got to find a way to occupy your time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like you mentioned, I think this is this is a good point. Um, that it is an entree into doing doing other sorts of sports betting, as we saw with with someone like like Rufus. Um, it's you know comparable to what some people are doing in in fantasy sports. I mean, one of my things when it's come to to sports betting is at least when we're looking at sides. And totals, you know, I'm not, I'm just not that confident that I can actually beat the market. So therefore, I'm less likely to even think, okay, how much time should I spend modeling this and and coming up with things? Whereas, you know, if, if you're a little bit more confident that you can beat the market, then you can you can start to work in that area. So let's I, I want to talk more about, you know, what, sorry, the, you, you, you just mentioned something, and it, it made me think of something, uh, talking about like modeling. And one thing yeah. with the with the props is that I would say one of the primary benefits of focusing on props is that it did encourage me to look at sports that I had really no awareness of beforehand. So before, like, I really wouldn't have thought, you know what, I want to uh, pay attention to college basketball and create models to project how these guys might do. But I mean, during March Madness, it was like, oh, there are a whole bunch of basketball props, you know, so I, I created models, I created projections, and they were pretty good. And it was the same thing with hockey, you know, like, it's the middle of summer, there's no football, uh, but there are hockey playoffs, like, okay, why don't I uh, try to create some hockey projections and see how they do against the market, and they did well. And so I think one of the, the benefits is that uh, if you focus on props, and if you actually want to beat them, and do the legwork yourself, uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of forces you to learn how to do things that you otherwise wouldn't have been doing. And, and maybe that makes you a better fantasy player. Maybe it just makes you a, a better thinker. Uh, I wouldn't say like a data scientist, but someone who can better manage data and manipulate data in a way that is predictive. And then also coming at this from the fantasy angle for a while, and I would say I still kind of even think of it this way, I kind of prefer props a little more than fantasy or fantasy leagues at this point, because like leagues, yeah, whatever, like I like being able to take uh, the over or the under, like in whatever market I want, I don't have to think about am I starting or sitting this guy, you know, I have this crappy team that I drafted three months ago, and I'm still stuck in this league where no one really cares. Like I can just dip into the market. And if I think a guy is overvalued or undervalued, I can bet on it. So I, I kind of think of props as an extension of fantasy, or maybe something that I do even kind of in lieu of fantasy at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think the feedback is that you're getting from betting is a higher signal to noise ratio also because you're you're able you're saying I'm placing this bet on how many yards this player will gain you could pretty easily diagnose why you were right or wrong on that sort of thing if you're playing DFS and you're combining you know however many 
possible millions of permutations into different lineups. It's not just about figuring out that particular player. Um, touchdown scoring is such a massive mover of fantasy scoring. Um, so obviously you can't bet on touchdowns, but at least you're explicitly doing that as opposed to um, explicitly doing something like like yards, which would have a little bit less less variance in it that you can that you can get to. Um, I wanted to go back to this when you talked about March Madness and then you talked about the playoffs and things like that. So yeah, that's another thing with props is I know, I know the Super Bowl for one, there are bigger limits available. There are tons of the most obscure props where if you're willing to put in the work to research how often these things happen, uh, you can get an edge there because I mean, again, these books are, are, are using this as advertising to, to get money in. What is, is, is there a huge, I mean, did, was a Super Bowl like Christmas and New Year's and everything wrapped up into one when it comes, comes to prop betting? Um, let, let's talk about that. Number one, the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean the the Super Bowl is it's the greatest. Uh and and Rufus, he goes to Vegas every year and is just running around to all the different sports books getting down as much action as he can and honestly, it's not like I'm at that level, but like it it's crossed my mind for like maybe not this year, you know, cuz I still don't want to travel in the middle of a pandemic, but like maybe in the future, like it's at that point to where it's like yes, like this is the one game where you can get down as much action as you want. And there are so many different markets, so many different types of bets for this one game. And, and really, we started to see it expand out a little bit more into other games during the playoffs so that it wasn't just the Super Bowl, but uh, you would see it with the championship games, the conference championship games, you know, even wildcard weekend, divisional round weekend. Like you could get down pretty decent action on those games just because there were more markets available, different types of props. So yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, other than that, like that was the, that was the game in the past year that I've clearly fired the hardest on. Um, other than that, like it's, it's just sort of like maintenance at this point. It's just sort of something that's casual, but yeah, like everything builds up to those Island games. Okay. Let's get a little bit more into, uh, like I said, when this is a big part of what you're doing, what, what the process was, you mentioned going and checking different books and being a maniacal, uh, internet searching fiend is how, I mean, I'm assuming you thought about ways of streamlining that process is that, I mean, I'm assuming that's kind of step. Well, I mean, step one is having good projections and all that stuff, but we, we kind of know that. But as far as the, the practical implications of how you implement even having good, good numbers, um, is it just a brute force method that you're going through and having to check or is, are there ways to streamline what you're doing? Well, not to uh, sound like a company man, but fortunately, yeah, I'm going to give you a plug here. This is fortunately a <laughs> there is a tool at fantasy labs, the, the player props tool, uh, which we created, which basically does all of that work for you. Uh, and so it shows you the best line that's available uh, on, on the market. Uh, and so you don't have to sort of guess like, oh, where, where's, where's the best line? You can, just, you can just kind of see it. But the thing is, there are also other types of props that aren't incorporated into that tool. And so I would just kind of have to know like, okay, this book tends to have better lines for this type of prop. And uh, I kind of, I kind of think of it, it's not nearly as sophisticated, or it's really not all that similar at all. But like, like the people who talk about day trading or something like that, like, like, they just look at a computer screen for hours, and maybe they start to see patterns, they at least think that they start to see patterns. But, you know, I think they probably do. And maybe it's not even something that they intuitively know. But I think it's just something where 
throughout the process of looking at props at books hour after hour, you start to see trends. Uh, and so when I was deep into it, I would just know that this book I even like there was one book with their, their hockey props. Like they would just consistently be off of the rest of the market on like their shots per game prop by maybe like a half a shot per game. You know, like you just kind of identify the books that are off in particular ways uh, and that helps to streamline it. But in the beginning, a lot of it really kind of is just like brute force. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'm thinking I, I, uh, the name escapes me now. I think there's a logic of sports betting. There's a book called The Logic of Sports Betting by Ed, by Miller. Ed Miller. Yeah, that's a great book. And and David De- David De- um, Matthew David Al, excuse me. And I remember part of it. One of the things that stuck out to me the most about that book, and this this goes into the, the, this thing here, is that you don't what what I mean. This is I, I'm probably butchering some of this or oversimplifying some of this. But the point was. The process isn't you find the game that you think your model is so much better than than you know everyone else's. Then you go and you search and you find the best line on that game and then you bet that game. The process is you find the game, you find the the, the markets, the lines that are so much off from the market, that the most off from the market generally. Then you choose amongst those games which one you think is best because you're you're locking in an edge at the very beginning and you're choosing amongst the edges as opposed to thinking that you are so special in your projection and then and then just saying well I'll take whatever's best out there based upon my special projection. Yeah, and I think there are there are two ways to do it. And so one is that sort of like take what the defense gives you kind of approach yes. where right. yeah, like you know, if, if Although if, defense doesn't matter in real football, but true, anyway, cor- go ahead. correct. Yes. But so so take what the defense gives you if you know there are eight men in the box, don't run into the box you know but yeah, so yeah, yeah one is, is that approach and then the other approach and it's much easier with props i would say than with sides or totals where you sort of identify i think you can at spots identify a situation where you are familiar enough with the market uh and then familiar enough with your projections and kind of the assumptions that go into your projections to look at a projection and be like you know what that's going to be like the market isn't going to be where I am. And then you just sort of know, okay, I need to go look at this guy's this guy's prop within the market and see where he is, knowing that you're probably going to have an edge there. But it's much harder to do that with sides and totals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's part of the whole sharpness of the of the of the mar- of the markets that that we were talking about that we're talking about there. Um, okay, let's look at. I want to talk somewhat about this year specifically. Um, Obviously, scoring has been way up. Yeah. So you, you you'd assume that filters down most logically uh, to touchdowns being 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 way up, but yards and all that stuff is go- probably going to be part of the equation too. Has that been an exploitable trend in props this year? Okay, so it's yeah, it's a situation where normally historically what we have seen is that unders tend to be sharp. Um, and I mean, I think you can sort of come up with, uh, different reasons for why that would be the case. One is sort of, you know, like a, a mean versus median type of situation. One would be that people, uh, think about the people who maybe aren't sharp, who are betting these, they are probably betting on like their favorite players. They're betting on something to happen, right? They want to see yards and touchdowns scored and, you know, receptions. Uh, And so books, you know, I think probably tend to skew the lines a little bit, which historically has created value 
on the under, but this year it's, and maybe it is because we just see more offense in general. Maybe it's because the books have tended to be a little bit sharper uh, as more people have entered the market. Um, the, the action is a little more balanced this year, but still normally you want to be betting on the unders. Yeah, I mean, uh, the whole thing we mentioned, if you can't get that much down, then they're not the liability exposure is a little bit less there if they're off. So they probably care more about a marketing capacity. And for marketing, uh, people like to, you know, people like to bet bet overs. And that, that also reminds me of, okay, so someone who's in the business of uh, putting out betting content and props content, what I've noticed is when like looking at our props tool that we have, it's almost like all over. I mean, all unders that show up a lot of the time. Um, there's some overs, but yet if you see uh, props that are being touted, I would say it's probably three quarters overs, or maybe half overs that are being touted. So, I mean, is there a an incentive in that in that area too? Where if if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna talk about props that are available, are maybe not even consciously, are you think does it? Do you just end up talking about overs more often because it's like explaining why someone isn't going to do something is not only is it less intuitive, but it just turns people off. Okay. Yes. And not only does it turn people off, but it also opens you up to all of the, I told you so's when, <laughs> when it doesn't work out, you know what I mean? Okay. Like, you know, so yeah. like people just love to be like, Oh, you hated on him and he went off for a hundred yards. You suck. But uh, yeah. no, I tend to be, you know, I think you know this about me. I tend to be more of a pessimistic person. So uh, I tend no. to like to talk about why something is going <laughs> to fail. Uh, and so, you know, I don't really, I don't really mind talking about the unders. And for me, it, in, in content, it really is just about where's the value, um, you know, whether it's me actually writing something up or whether it's, you know, a, a pick that I'm, I'm putting in the app. Um, I'm just focusing on where the value is. And so I'm, I'm looking at the player prop tool we have at Fantasy Labs, and we have different props, you know, ranked according to the bet quality that we see there. And so the bets that we have ranked this year with the bet quality of 10, they have gone uh, 70% uh, in terms of the win rate. And it looks like I'd say about two thirds, uh, not quite three quarters, but I'd say two thirds of the bets that we have given a bet quality of 10 are on the unders. So like the unders are still the, the sharp side, but it's much, it's much closer than it was historically. Like I remember looking at past seasons and so many of the bets that we had graded at 10 were unders, you know, maybe every out of every 10, maybe every like 7.8 to eight of them were unders. Yeah. So even, even though it's hitting at a, like a super majority type of type of clip, that's still traditionally low versus, versus, versus what you would have seen. Um, Now, when you were thinking about this, um, to start the season, I mean, there were some ideas out there because of the lock, you know, the lockout that happened in whenever it was 2011, 11, yeah. you know, scoring was up. I think that was all BS. I mean, I think that was the angle that actually ended up happening. You know, the, the, the penalties were down was, was the big obvious thing that that was happening. Holding was about cut in half. And if you look at it year over year, 
I, it was funny because it seems like a much longer time ago when everyone was complaining about all the holding calls, but it was just the beginning of last year that they changed the <laughs> right. guidance. Yeah. And then I think it was Tom Brady tweeting during a Thursday night football game about how unwatchable it was. Finally kicked the league into action and they just open, open things back up again. But especially in, con- in contrasting it to last year, it's like it, the holding calls were down like 40% or something like that. So I mean, do you think this 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 trend that we've seen so far will be continue to be exploitable the rest of the season is the question. Uh, exploitable moving forward, probably not, because lines have already moved up. I mean, we're now six weeks, you know, five full weeks into the season entering our six week. Lines have really adjusted. And you even saw this uh, in the overs and unders that were set for weeks four and weeks five. They were much higher than they were earlier in the season just for games. And you saw something similar in the prop market as well. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have to check then I probably should actually have these numbers before, before mentioning this on the podcast, but I'm gonna have to check the numbers for this last week, because to me, anecdotally, it seemed like there were more penalties being, being thrown this last week. So I'll have to check to see if there's actually been something that's happened. It could have just been, it was really ugly. What was it? Maybe it was the, the Bears-Bucks game. One of these games was really ugly as far as the, the number of penalties, so I could just be influenced by that. But I think that's probably something people should be checking uh, going forward just to see if the penalties, if they're sort of reverting. As, they, as the NFL always does, you know, they, they throw out some sort of guidance. It, it goes too far in one direction, and then they jump back too far in the other direction. Um, let's get down to some more of the micro aspects of props. When, you know, so I think there's, there's this confusing thing. If someone's building their own system, you have a projection, and then you have an over-under for that for that projection now your projection most of the time when people are building these it's kind of like a a mean sort of sort of projection so it includes this distribution which includes uh more low-end outcomes fewer very very high-end outcomes but that means it's going to skew kind of higher than what the actual median is so so how do you think about projecting If, if you're thinking about your own projections as part of this um how do you think about that relationship yeah, so one of the guys who maybe is the best example of this is someone like Tyreek Hill, where if mm-hmm. you create his like his sort of average projection, uh, he would maybe have like, I don't know, like 75, 72 yards per game or something like that. But his median, like what happens around 50% of the time would be something around like 65 yards per game. And it's because those bigger outlier performances skew they like drag up the average uh and so if i know that there's a player like that and you get that most with wide receivers although sometimes you get that with running backs like like derrick henry or something like that but like for the most part if i know that there's a player who tends to be volatile then i will kind of do the extra legwork of uh like going into like pro football reference and then just kind of sorting and and sort of looking at at the media this is very back of the envelope stuff right um but for most players i i know that their median and their mean is close enough to where i don't really have to think about it too much but for those those guys who like themselves tend to be kind of outliery type of players I know I just, I need to, to double check, but at this point, I just sort of like, know like the mental adjustment that I, that I need to make. And and so I almost don't really even need to check all that much anymore, but for the guys who certainly have more volatility in how it is that they get their production, you do need to be cognizant of thinking about what happens 50% of the time, as opposed to thinking of what happens on average. No, that, 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 that makes sense. And 
Okay, let's. I, I, I kind of think about these things in components as far as when we're projecting these players. Um, so let's talk about let's think about like rushing props versus receiving props, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the again, we talk about signal noise, that sort of stuff. I mean, the signal you're getting from like a rushing share should be at least stronger than a signal that you're getting from a target share because if the team wants to give 80% of their carries to a particular running back, now there are elements in there, you know, like game script and who happens to be in the game for things like that. But they can do that. They could they could give exactly 80% of their carries to it and probably not really even affect the the team that much if they wanted to do it. Whereas you can't get, you know, 25% of your targets to X player in any sort of meaningful manner like that. And even when it comes to routes, you know, routes can be dictated by formation for some of these guys, or they just run like 80, 90, 100% of the routes. So it doesn't really, there's no real differentiation there. So how, how do you think about these different elements when looking at receiving versus rushing, um, the confidence in those projections, things like that? Yeah, I, I feel it's much easier to be confident about the rushing projections um, that you create, because especially like targets, they can be pretty volatile week to week. And then what a guy does with his targets, that can be pretty volatile week to week. So you just have sort of these two layer, these, these two layers of, uh, of uncertainty. Whereas, you know, with rushing, I mean, there can be a little bit of volatile volatility there, but you know, for the most part, like a guy is going to kind of be within that wheelhouse of like three to five yards, like per carry. And you can, you know, if it's a guy who's, a, a true lead back, you can pretty much spot it of like, you know what, he's probably going to be between 15 to 18 carries in this game. And then you just kind of have to nail it down a little bit better from there. So the the rushing projections tend to be much more certain than the the receiving projections. And I mean, for the reasons that you outlined, it makes sense. And I mean, I mentioned routes in here, I think for players who are emerging, uh, who may not be full-time players, that's something that that people look at. But I always wonder whether or not um, we can build... Okay, so I, I'm trying to figure out a correct way to frame this. It's kind of like when someone... Well, it's not like this, but it, it's... You know, you know if, someone, if someone's a tape grinder, right? They're a tape grinder. Yeah. And they see something and they're like, I have this unique piece of knowledge that no one else has. So... And they could be right about this, by the way. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's even wrong, but the the reality is they should weigh that piece of knowledge like two percent in their overall projection because it's not that important. But because it's unique and because they only have it, they'll weight it like seventy percent of their <laughs> of their projection of what of, of what they're doing um, because they think they have an edge. So they're trying to exploit that that yes. edge. But the reality is they have edge on a tiny a tiny sliver. So when I think about some of these things, yeah. maybe maybe routes routes is not quite the same because routes is like a legitimate thing. But as you get further and further away from production, you're getting kind of further and further away from what's actually important like if you're saying oh you know i noticed this player is involved in this particular formation and they're going to run this formation because of the defense that they're playing against and that defense doesn't do well in the middle and it's like you start you start you get this yeah. one little unique piece of knowledge and now you're going to say you know what i'm going all in on this player this week where the reality is like you have to weigh that against like 50 other things that are more important so what yeah. do you, what do you I, I'm so, I just rambled there but this is great so the, I, I should say it's it's embarrassing to me that i uh, sort of like history wise have been better at basketball props 
and, uh, and, and even certain types of baseball props uh, and hockey props than I am at NFL props. And I think there could be a, a number of reasons as to why that's the case. But the fact is, I just, I know nothing about, about basketball, like about the, the players, about like their tendencies. You live in the Midwest. Maybe that's it. Maybe I, that's just starting to. It's just like, I, I just, I don't it's know. It's become you part know? of your culture. It's like, I just don't, I don't follow it. Uh, and so I think it was just easier for me to sort of look at numbers just bet based on what I was seeing within the spreadsheets and not have any assumptions at all about what was happening with the players when they were actually playing. Uh, And with football, I think I probably have a little bit of like, well, I know better where maybe, you know, like the models tell me one thing, uh, but I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't really trust that, you know? Uh, And so, (laughs) so maybe, maybe that's part of it. And then also uh, I think, it's it's a little bit harder for me to model football, even though it's like my sport, than to model basketball or model hockey or something like that. And, and maybe like you can talk to this. I feel like I just with each and I should just say I'm not really a data person, although like I want to get into it more and more. And I, I feel like I've picked up little things along the way, but I know like I don't have the sophistication that a lot of other people do when it comes to creating projections or building models. So maybe part of it is that I try to be a little too sophisticated for my own good when it comes to uh, building uh, NFL models, whereas I don't even know how I would go about doing that with something like basketball or hockey. Uh, And so I maybe for those sports build a model that is actually maybe more predictive um, because I don't gunk it up with a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and so when I'm building models, I try to like think of like, okay, what is the most important thing for this sport or for like this type of player? Uh, and then that is what I build the model around. And I feel like for basketball and for hockey, I was able to figure those things out pretty quickly of like, what is the primary driver of production? Whereas for NFL, I think it's maybe a little bit harder to figure out like with, with hockey and basketball, like it's minutes, right? Like it's time. And like, you don't have to figure that out, you know, unless a game goes into overtime, but like, you know, how many minutes are going to be played in each game with football. It's a little bit harder because you don't know how many plays each offense is going to have per game. Like you have to model that out a little bit based on game script. And so I, like, I think that's a little bit harder for the unsophisticated guy who's talking right now to be able to, to figure that out as well as some other people could. And so maybe that's why I've been better uh, at some other sports in comparison to, to football. I've still been like good at football, um, but I've also relied a little bit more on projections from, from other people. But um yeah, I mean, I don't even kind of remember where where we started, <laughs> where I was when I started talking, but it was it's uh yeah, it's just the the modeling uh the the simpler it has been for me, the more success I've had when betting those sports and yeah, with football, the you started talking about the edge that someone thinks that the hidden edge that they think they might have um based on watching the sport. Uh, like football is the game I know the best. And I'd say, I still don't even know it all that well, but it's the game I know the best. And it's, it's the one where uh, I don't do as well with prop betting as I probably should, given that it's my field of expertise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably a couple different elements there. I mean, basketball, like you have so many possessions, right? Yeah. You have so 
the variance in scoring just on a per possession basis is much lower. Like you're either going to score zero, you're going to get a single free throw, you're going to get two points, or you're going to get three points. It's not going to get like a touchdown so many times and then zero so many times. So you don't you don't have this huge variance. The number of plays that it takes to get those points um, is all over the place in football, where, again, you're not going to have that in, in basketball. I mean, in hockey, in some ways, you're going there is like a possession sort of thing. I mean, obviously, the scoring is a lot more random, but I can see how, again, like you're talking about, like when something doesn't go the way you're thinking it's going to go or it doesn't go the way, not, not just you, but just generally you think it's going to go in football, you know it, you're following it. Uh, there's a week between games. We are masterminds in the NFL of creating a reason, a narrative behind every single thing that happened. Nothing is chance. Nothing is just variance. Everything. There's a reason behind everything. If you look long enough, whereas if you're just blindly betting NHL stuff, you're going to have that same sort of noise, but you're not going to build in the, the week by week uh, game by game narratives that you would in the NFL to explain it. So then you can just stick to what you're doing and, and continue to move forward, plow forward. So I can see how that could be helpful in those circumstances. Yeah, I, I think that's right. That makes sense to me. All right. So let's um, I want to talk about some specific situations and then how to think about these from a props uh, angle. So when we talked about guys who are, who are moving up, I think rookies are interesting in the NFL a lot because um, this year in particular, uh, rookie rushers, eh, you know, not not so great. Um, I I think someone someone like Clyde Edwards Hilaire has been getting uh, a pretty massive workload. Week one, it wasn't as much in the receiving, but that was pretty short lived and it continued to go forward and forward. So for, for guys like that, so I guess we have two different angles. We have one, Guys who are getting the workload that you want, they're getting the opportunity. If you looked up on things like we have this expected fantasy points tool that's looking exactly at their workload, what they should score every single week, they're coming in, you know, they should have scored five points higher than what they did. Um, like, when do you give up on these guys or do you or do you not give up? You know, how do you how do you put one of those situations? How do you think about those situations? Well, I guess not give up. But w- when do you flip and you say, you know, I need to start adjusting down my projections, despite the fact that. Uh, it, just in a pure agnostic way, they should be they should be higher than than what than what these guys are actually scoring. I think you got to do it pretty quickly, um, but it's based on things like market share. You know, based on things that you can sort of ground it in the workload that they're getting, the number of snaps they're playing. I should say though, um, in this, I haven't actually gone the full distance, and th- and this shouldn't surprise you. I'm I'm a fairly lazy person when it comes to the the rigor of my research. I haven't gone the full distance of actually back testing this, but I should say it's it's market tested in that I've I've bet based on this and I I've had success with it. Historically, right the the unders tend to be sharp with player props, but some of the exceptions have been with rookie running backs early on in the season. Because I think books just haven't exactly known the way that fantasy players have known. Like we sort of obsess of like, oh yes, this guy <clears throat> immediately he's going to be the lead back on his team. Whereas sports books, they they don't really focus on it quite as much. Uh, and so I think this would be a, a place where fantasy players would have an edge. And rookie running backs historically, uh, especially the guys who really have that locked in lead back role right away early in the season, they have historically provided value to the over 
just because books have kind of given what I'd say is like veteran deference, uh, you know, thinking that the other back in that backfield will have a larger role than he does. So rookie running backs generally have tended to be profitable to the over. It hasn't been as much the case this year. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm for guys like Cam Akers, J.K. Dobbins, entering the league and in in week one you know they obviously didn't do well and they've disappointed since then uh jonathan taylor has underwhelmed with the opportunities that he's gotten and similar similarly with clyde edwards alaire uh so they haven't been hitting the overs the way that historically a lot of rookie backs have um Maybe that's just a one-year thing that has to do with this class, uh, but something to keep an eye on for future seasons. Well, you know, I'm kind of going a little bit of a different angle um, than the rookie angle, but you mentioned an interesting thing, which is kind of paying attention to what's being said. Um, So how much does, how much, just this is more of a general props thing. How much does that play into finding profitable props, not having the best projections based upon all having the same information, but knowing a guy is uh, dinged up so then another guy will get more production where it may not be fully realized, knowing that, um, you know, a coach is talking up one, of course, that can be dangerous. Uh, also, uh, a yeah. coach is talking up one player versus another player. Um, are, are those angles perhaps even more exploitable than having better knowledge of what has happened and and then using that to project what will happen? So I think this has two applications. One is before the season has started and because there are the season long props, which I have to say, these are some of my favorites um, because they're, they're so bad. I mean, they're so I'm just, it, it makes me think of um, when Ezekiel Elliott was drafted in one book. And this, I mean, it was half a decade ago. Now lines have gotten sharper, but one book set the line of rushing yards. at something like 950. And it was just like, oh, God, like, that, like you're giving me, you're giving me PTSD flashbacks here because I remember, I, I think I used some of those to argue against Ezekiel Elliott as like a top, I think Evan Silva props to Evan. He's, he's, he's nailing Josh Allen this year also. Um, well, until, until last night, um, the, I think, I think he had Ezekiel Elliott as his running back one, his rookie year. Um, and then I was making the argument of why that wasn't the case. And one of the, one of the things I used was how can he be the running back one if they don't even have like projected for a thousand yards for his yeah. prop. So I'm a donkey basically go ahead. No, but yeah. So, you know, before the season starts, a lot of those lines are pretty bad, especially when it has to do with guys who are in new situations. So rookies or wide receivers, changing teams, things like that. Uh, and so if you really, Part of it is looking historically and thinking of like, okay, this guy was a second round running back. He did this in college. He has this kind of physical profile. They don't really have an established back on the team. Yeah. Like I think he ends up getting X number of yards from scrimmage this season. Some of it is just sort of like a historical projection that informs your particular projection with the circumstances on that team. And then part of it is also paying attention to the the coach speak of what's said, you know, like beat reporters uh, like, Oh yeah, this guy is practicing ahead of the veteran in training camp. We didn't get a lot of that this year because there was no training camp. And and so, you know, uh, we just, I would say normally 
there tends to be a benefit to that stuff, but it's, it's a slight benefit and you kind of have to know like the beat reporters who actually know what they're talking about. Like you don't just pay attention to what is just being said on Twitter. Uh, So that's like before the season starts. And I do, I do think, although you have to wrap your money up for like five months at a time, um, I do think that there's still a pretty big edge to betting on a lot of the props that have to do with the entire season. Uh, And then during the week, uh, that's the other angle on news. Uh, I think that it's really important actually to pay attention to what the respected beat reporters are saying uh, to pay attention to the practice reports. Uh, And then even, you know, someone like, like Schefter, uh, like, I mean, he knows, you know, so like if he puts out a tweet saying like, Oh, you know, so-and-so is like unlikely to play. If there's a prop that's posted, then you can probably, you know, take the sharp side of like, okay, well that backup or like that other wide receiver is going to see more target volume if this other guy is out. So maybe we hit the over on his prop. The one thing I would say though, is that books have gotten a little bit sharper about when they release lines for players. Like at this point now they do pay attention to guys who are highly questionable to play. And so they don't put lines up for those guys and they don't put lines up for the other guys who would have correlated production based on whether that guy is in or out. So it's not quite the angle that it used to be, but that angle is still there certainly on like Sunday mornings when uh, you know, there's some uncertainty about certain players, you can still get an edge there and the books are slower. You know, I mean, they have, real lines that they're focused on. Uh, And so if, you know, news breaks that like a running back is out uh, or a wide receiver is out, there might be a period of like five to 10 minutes where you could profit from that information uh, in a way that the book hasn't taken into account. Yeah. no, And then one thing I'll say about um, when it comes to beat reporters or guys like uh, Adam Schefter or Rappaport, you know, they have, they have fantastic information um, as long as they stay in their lane because yes. I think there there becomes a problem when you listen to a beat writer or someone else where they try to translate the information they have into a prediction about something and they they don't make predictions. They don't understand how to make predictions. Yeah. Then you can get some really bad predictions yeah. off of good beat information. reporters are the worst at this. Yeah, they're absolutely <laughs> See, I didn't the want worst. to say they're the worst. I was, I was they giving are. I'll say they are the worst at it. <laughs> Well, I th- you think you get yelled at. Imagine how much these guys get, oh, get yelled at for yeah. everything, for everything constantly. Um, okay, so one, um, I, I want to kind of this is bringing together a couple different things here. One, you're talking about like um, how our feelings about players. So I want to talk about. I was going to want to talk about the Rams backfield anyway because I feel like it's an interesting situation. You were pretty high on Cam Akers, I believe, coming yeah, into the I, season. I was unfortunately. Uh, so you've been you've been getting uh, Sean McVay, uh, fake sharp Sean McVay, as Adam Levitan would say, has been torturing you on a weekly basis on what's going on here. Like, how do you how do you even dissect what's going on in backfield like that from a props angle? Um, is there is there something you can exploit? Can you exploit the variance in some way by just betting on whoever has the lowest prop every single week, or is it something you would just ignore generally? So with split backfields like this. Um... I think it's actually historically been profitable to bet the unders because mo- okay, so mm, most of the okay. time the books won't even post lines for all three guys. Right. But, right. but sometimes, sometimes they will. But um, historically, I think it's been profitable to, to bet the unders because if, if one guy goes off, then I think he, he really goes off and then the other guy uh, will go under 
And in that instance, you're losing just a little bit. But uh, there are those instances where the backfield ends up getting split in a game pretty evenly. And in that case, both guys uh, have a pretty decent shot of hitting the unders. And so the way that I would probably approach um, a situation like the Rams backfield is not like blindly betting the unders or anything like that, but, you know, like looking at it and I would imagine that in that situation, we probably see more often than not value to the under on all of the guys who are in that backfield when it comes to the rushing yardage prop. Okay. And then for a situation, let's say this, this next week, um, because you know, He's just he's just rolling a three sided die each week to decide who the man's going to be. And let's say Cam Akers is the man this week. Well, how much do you let your your preseason opinion and your feeling on Cam Akers and the fact he's a rookie affect your projections going forward? Are you like wheels up more than you would be generally, or or this far into the season are you really discounting whatever those priors would have been? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm only human, Kevin. Uh, you know, so it's it's a situation where I I will try to be uh, a little more reasonable, but yeah. you know, I I also want to try to keep like the the longer term in mind. So like knowing that they invested a second rounder in uh in Cam Akers, knowing that he is like a physically gifted specimen, like knowing that he was like a, I mean, I don't want to get into like, he was a five-star recruit entering college, but like just knowing all of the things that he has coming along with him, I don't want not to be as we'll say optimistic on him as I should be just because of what happened in like a three game sample when he was out, you know what I mean? So like, I I still imagine that he is the guy that they would want to be the leader within that backfield, but I have to temper that with the knowledge that uh, for some reason, they just seem to love Malcolm Brown much more than they should. And uh, you know, Daryl Henderson was also a third rounder last year who produced in college. He's got good athleticism and he's, you know, been pretty productive for the past month. And so I have to take all of those things into account, which means that I'm probably not going to be as optimistic in my projecting with Cam Akers as much as I want to be uh, just because like realistically I shouldn't be, you know, like I, there's, there's no way that I can responsibly project Cam Akers just to go off given the circumstances of what, uh, of what Daryl Henderson has done for the past month. And, you know, that Malcolm Brown is still somehow breathing and on a football team. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could tell your love runs deep. If you're still talking about what star recruit they were before they were even in college, he was a five-star <laughs> midway, recruit, Kevin. Mid, midway through the rookie season. Wow. You're, you're in deep. Okay. There's might not be, but we ought not be able to help there. Okay. Let me look at another situation. So, um, this is something that happens a lot. Uh, shout out to running backs. Don't matter. Uh, Twitter, Alexander Madison coming in for Dalvin cook. So like, if you're doing a projection on this, um, you got you got Mike Boone, who I believe did not have a single carry uh, going in before last week. Uh, I'm of two minds on this. I feel like logically, when you're projecting these guys, you might be projecting even bigger shares for Madison than you would have projected for Cook if Cook was playing because there's no Alexander Madison to the Alexander Madison, if that makes sense. But 
he it is. It's not Dalvin Cook. It's not the guy that they're they're overpaying um, uh, on their contract uh, this year. So how do you think about these backup guys and 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 projecting them? Because I feel like from a projection standpoint, you can start over projecting these guys, assuming the efficiency differences are going to be immaterial, just because you, you don't have many other places to go with the share. Yeah, it is possible to over project the guys. I'm taking. Um... I would say a sort of cautious approach with Madison, although like, um, you know, from a fantasy perspective, I'm very bullish on him and invested in him in a lot of places. Um, But like, I thought he was a a premium handcuff. And I honestly think the difference between Madison and Dalvin cook is, and maybe this is just part of like hashtag running backs don't matter. But I think the difference between those two guys is not nearly the difference that a lot of people would think. Um, But Mike Boone, Uh, has flashed in the past when he's been given an opportunity. Uh, And so I do expect that he will have an annoying share of rushing workload uh, this upcoming week. And so right now I have uh, Madison projected for, I think, around 58% of the team's rushing uh, workload. Uh, Boone projected for around 20%. And, uh, you know, as sort of like a leftover, I have Dalvin Cook projected for like 5%, you know, like knowing that later in the week, I'm going to go in and, and adjust that down. But I left it at 5% just in case he ends up playing. And, you know, I need to adjust it up at that point. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to to go crazy and give Madison like a 75 or 80% like Derrick Henry-esque uh, rushing market share. You know, like I'm not going to do that. I think, uh, you know, somewhere in the 55 to 65% range is much more realistic. Now, anecdotally, have you found that in these situations where you're doing a one-for-one switch out from a starter, presumably in this case, from, from the starter to a high-quality handcuff, like where do the projections, I mean, do the do the lines that you're seeing at books generally come out one direction versus yours or... Or do you think there's nothing? That's a good question. I, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't really noticed because it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen enough for me really to notice it. And uh, I guess what I would say is that because I haven't noticed that line is probably within the wheelhouse of, of where it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also the situation where there are a lot of like fake handcuffs who yes. guys who we think are handcuffs and then they don't end up being handcuffs. So when, when we're wrong about those drastically wrong, we say, uh, we, we've kind of forget it. We're like, well, that guy wasn't really the handcuff anyway, even though we thought he was beforehand. And, and you know what? I'll also one thing, and, and this is part of why I, I haven't noticed it. It's a kind of your question here. Like the books, often they don't like that first week if they don't know how a running back is going to be used what the backfield looks like if the starter's out they won't post lines for any of the running backs you know like they just look to avoid the liability altogether okay let's think about um one other thing why okay wide receiver breakouts i want to talk about a little bit just because um i'm going to use chase claypool as an example just because he's like um, Jerry Rice, Calvin Johnson, and uh, Randy Moss all wrapped into one package. I'm I'm reading. Um, I mean, don't sell them short, like, Kevin. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I was uh, I was having I, I was showing a lot of restraint on the Twitter the Twitter machine, not responding to these like Calvin. Don't put Calvin Johnson's name in the same tweet, please, as as Chase Claypool. I beg you. Um, so anyway, so so when, when a player breaks out like that. 
I, this goes to a larger point of if Deontay Johnson is back, you cannot like project him for the same sort. Well, maybe you can, but but you probably can't project him for 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 that sort of target share and things like that. But how much does production lead to? Um, like share and 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 opportunity. You know, we always talk about opportunity in production, but how much for a breakout player can you say, well, they haven't had that much opportunity, but because they broke out, then I'm going to project them. I'm going to do this kind of projection opportunity going forward. Um, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, like if Chase Claypool had an had a total snooze of a game last week, obviously you're not going to be projecting him even for as much opportunity this week, even if he had the same opportunity as far as routes run and things like that. So, how do you think about that dynamic? Yeah, it's okay. So a, a couple of things. One, I would say that um, before guys break out, let's say like a, a number three wide receiver, or like in his case, a number four wide receiver, there won't even be lines on him at, at most books. But after right. a guy has broken out, yeah, I mean, there are definitely going to be lines on him this week. Um, I try to focus less on the actual production that he has accumulated and to try to focus more on what actually matters for his production. And that would just be the number of snaps he's out there on the field, the number of routes he's running and, you know, on like a a per route basis, the number of targets you would expect him to get, uh, or, you know, framed in a much broader sense, just like market share target, you know, the, the market share of targets. Uh, and I think, your point is well taken that a guy who produces is going to like production breeds production. A guy who produces one week has a enhanced chance of getting more targets uh, the next week. Um, But what I should say is that it's not just like production leads to targets. It's that like targets lead to targets. If a guy has a big game, it's normally because he's, he's seized a higher share of the opportunities within his offense. And that is what is projectable moving forward. Not really the production that he was able to get off of the market share that he seized. And so you can look at uh, Chase Claypool, uh, you know, for week three, when Deontay Johnson was out, uh, he had only an 11% market share. Like that's almost nothing. Right. Uh, But then in week five, uh, when Deontay Johnson went out, it jumped up to 32%. Now, like, am I going to project him for 32% market share in week six? I want to. <laughs> My heart yeah, wants to, but no, it's I'm linear. Not. It's linear. So yeah. I think you have to go up to 50 something percent. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's a situation where I have to be like, okay, well, is he going to have 32% again? Probably not. But if Deontay Johnson is out, like, is he going to be somewhere between the 11% that he had in week three and the 32% that he had in week five? Like, probably like somewhere in there is the right range. And is it only 16%? I don't know. Like that seems too low. Like it should probably be in the twenties. Like at this point, if you look at the guys he's competing against, he's competing against Juju who at this point, I don't want to say he's left for dead, but uh, he's, he's not the, he's not the chosen one. We thought he was Uh, competing against James Washington, competing against Eric Ebron. Like from this point to the end of the season, there is, a a non-zero chance that Chase Claypool actually is the wide receiver one in Pittsburgh. Uh, And so like, I'm not going to project him for like a Julio-esque 28% of the targets, but if Deontay Johnson is out and if none of those other guys are really seizing the opportunity, 
22 to 25% seems like within yeah. the reasonable range of outcomes for him. Uh, and if yeah. he does that, um, there's a pretty decent chance that he exceeds his props this week, even though you know the books are probably going to adjust them upwards even higher than they think they should be, uh, just based on what he did last week. Yeah, no, yeah. I, mean, I guess even for guys like Deontay Johnson – it is a second round pick who's been okay. I mean, he's been good, obviously, but you know, he he's not solidified. It's not Antonio third, Brown, right? Third this rounder. Is not, this, third rounder. Oh, he's a third rounder. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he went before DK I, I, for some I'm reason. I'm obsessed. But, I'm obsessed with the rounds in which these guys are taken. It's it's the only Bayesian prior to which reason. I cling. All right. Well, we'll edit that out. And then, uh, uh, but but my point would be is like it's not Antonio Brown, right? Yeah. Um, leaving and and coming back, and it's kind of interesting with Juju. Like I like to fade. Uh, competency of front offices, but yeah, they weren't re-signing him, and I guess they were telling us something that they kind of knew about him. Yeah. Um, so props to props, props to football guys. You got us on that one. Um, okay, one. Let me see. This is an interesting angle. Rushing props for quarterbacks. I wanted to talk about a little bit because again, now we're we're getting like a smaller, like a small. Now you're betting on a periphery part of a lot of quarterbacks' games. Some guys not. Um, I also want to maybe wrap Lamar Jackson into this because I don't know what's going on with him rushing-wise. Obviously, he had the injury and things like that. But let, let's talk about rushing, adjusting your, your projections and rushing for for quarterbacks. What what are your are those are those particularly exploitable, or is there anything interesting angle to those that you can think of? I think. Uh, I mean, I've been like, okay at those, at those types of props, not great. Um, I, I feel I was pretty ahead of the curve on, uh, Lamar Jackson in his rookie year, uh, when it came to hitting the overs on his rushing props. Um, and I would say, especially with, um, like rookie quarterbacks who do have good mobility, I think the overs on their props tend to be pretty decent um, just because I think they are <laughs> likelier to run because it's just right. like, you know, for their lives. mostly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're, they're running <laughs> for their lives. It's like the one thing that they can do. Um, and, you know, I think books will tend to have a, a more moderate projection just based on like what they see across the league with running uh, or with, with quarterbacks. And a lot of these guys aren't runners. And so they would just sort of set a line that is probably too low for the the guy under consideration. Um, But one angle that is kind of interesting and, and Sean corner has, has brought this up a few times, but guys who are um, projected to win, like in the pocket passers, you know, like there's a decent chance that maybe they like take like, even as many as like five kneel downs in a game, you know? And it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? So it's like, yeah, that actually, you know, think about like Brady, like maybe at the end of a half, like takes, takes a knee or something. And then the end of the game takes three knees. Like that matters. Like that actually, or someone like Philip rivers, like that actually really does matter. Uh, And so for the unders, for some of the, the pocket passers, especially if they are favored, uh, it actually might kind of be the sharp side that you get there just by guys taking knees at the end of a game. Uh, So that's kind of like an added wrinkle. Um, But like, that's more of like, I don't know. Like I would say that's more of like a a tiebreaker situation and something that's already kind of like baked into the, the rushing projection for a guy. And ultimately like, I don't really think of like betting props as something that I do based on tiebreakers. It's like, if the edge isn't big enough for me to see it on its own, then like, I'm, I'm probably not betting it. 
Yeah, because just when I've been doing production uh, projections this year, it's been I've noticed the rushing when you're projecting a rushing share for quarterbacks. Like I, I'm often surprised looking at the historicals. Um, I mean, this is on a smaller sample. Like we're talking about what's happened so far year to date. Sometimes you'll have guys who you feel are incredibly immobile who have a decent share, um, whether it's because, I don't know, they've been sneaking it or there's just been a few circumstances where they've had to run. Um, and then you also have these circumstances with quarterbacks who just have like astronomical share. I mean, for instance, Josh Allen was a guy where I think he started week one and he had 14 rushing attempts. And he's still been rushing since, but it's been like four, four, three. Last night, he had f- four. First of all, I'm saying last night. This is going to come out tomorrow. So two, night, two nights ago, um, he had four. Although I think almost all of those were like near the when they were already trailing. It almost seemed like he wasn't really trying to to run early. So, yeah, how, what do you think about projecting in, in those circumstances? Someone like Josh Allen going forward, if you look at his overall share for the year, it's it's still pretty high, but it's only been three or four the last couple of games. So I try to have something of a a weighted approach where I'm looking at what has happened most recently and uh, and weighing that, and then also kind of breaking it down based on game state. And so you'll see, especially with a lot of running quarterbacks, that there's a difference between what they do when they are ahead versus what they do when uh, they are behind. Uh, and so someone like Josh Allen, um, I would expect, uh, one second, getting to the rushing here. I mean, scrambles are obviously a big part of it, right? So for a lot of yeah. quarterbacks, you're going to scramble more when you're behind because you're getting to those situations where you're just – the the they're 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 playing zone defense they're playing back they're giving you um a six yard scramble if you want to take it on every single play um, yeah. so I can see that um, yeah. as far as rushing I mean I guess you'd assume that that is core like design rushes are correlated with being at least not massively behind but I don't know if they're correlated with being ahead that much because why would you want to run a guy um, exactly if so you were ahead? When, yeah so when a team is ahead uh, a, a running quarterback still is not going to get that much rushing production because either, you know, through design, he's going to be handing the ball off or they're going to feel like, okay, we can protect him against this inferior opponent and we can still throw the ball. Uh, And so if you look at the course of the season, um, Josh Allen has a 25% rushing share for Buffalo. If you look, if you take out week one and just look at like the trailing four weeks that drops down to 16%. Like what he has done most recently, and I think how the team wants to use him uh, is staying in the pocket. Like I don't think they want him to be leaving the pocket. I think they want him to develop as someone who is more of a passer and less of a runner. Uh, and so that has to be incorporated into the projection, the projections. And it's, I'd say like, this is a part where it gets to like more of an art and less of a science where you just have to make these these decisions that like, Hey, uh, I like, I'm projecting him down. Like I'm not projecting him for something like 25%, even though that is like the larger sample, it might not actually be the the most representative sample of how he's going to be used going forward. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess with Alan, what I didn't think about too is he did tweak his shoulder or something against the, the Raiders where he tried to do this, 
like underhand flip out pass <laughs> yes. with his. That was actually pretty sweet though. It wasn't like a Josh Allen tried to do like normally like 2019 Josh Allen tried to do play where you know like it's going to be something hilarious uh, um, when you say that. Like it was actually like. Favre uh, Mahomes esque what what he did there, but he hurt his he hurt his shoulder on that one. So I guess that could play because last because you know this week when he was playing he didn't do anything until they were down by eighteen. They ran some sort of design run, and I was like, "You're down by eighteen points." It didn't it didn't really make sense to me, but um, yeah, they definitely did not seem to be running him. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about here, spent taking a lot of your time here. This has been very educational for me and hopefully uh, the listeners. So one one more angle is this is kind of like a news angle too is Andy Dalton for the Cowboys you're a Cowboys fan correct yeah this is this is painful is it like is it slightly embarrassing to admit you're a Cowboys fan if you're not like if you're if you're not are you do you, do you have some like tangential att- attachment to Dallas that you can you can yeah. rep when you say yeah, that no I mean okay. I grew up in the Dallas Fort Worth area do you have to tell people that when you tell them you're a Cowboys fan Kevin, this is assuming I talk to people. <laughs> I, I, I well, see, the I thing is, I'm from Southern from California. As as I'm from Southern California, and I'm a Lakers fan. So, like, if you mention you're a Lakers fan and you don't live in California, I almost feel obligated to be like, "Hey, listen, I'm not Mr. Lakers, Cowboys, Yankees." You know, that's not. I'm yeah. not like that. Like, I'm actually. No, from, I mean, I don't, I don't get from, defensive about it. And if someone asks, you know, I'll be like, "Yeah, you know, I'm 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 from Texas." You know, like whatever. It's, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, look, now that we got really off topic there, um, Andy Dalton, how 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 does that affect? Let's talk about from more of a macro perspective. It doesn't have to be necessarily props related. What are you thinking about Andy Dalton now with taking this DAC role? Because obviously there was a lot of goodness in that offense. So how much of that is Dak? How much of that is pace? How much of that is receivers? How much of that is everything else? So when we subbing Andy Dalton into that, do we massively downgrade what we're doing? Do, do you think there's even a chance they start operating differently as an offense, essentially, maybe not with as much pace and things like that? That's really been juicing it up. And then you throw in the aspect of even with Dalton, they're probably not going to be down by like 25 points every single week. Right. Um, hopefully the defense will be, we'll, we'll, we'll have something that will come together. So I, all those things together, how are you thinking about Andy Dalton in Dallas? Okay. And so, the effect on the team. Largely. Yeah. So we should just start all this by saying uh, I'm a moron and I, I know that. So like, these, <laughs> these are like, these are questions, like all of these moving parts, like people smarter than me can't, figure out all of this so like it's just it's a great big projection question and so a big part of it is the pace I think they will try to continue to play with this pace I think kind of regardless of whoever they have a quarterback they have this sort of uh like eight seconds or 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 fewer like mentality of like wanting to score uh wanting to move as quickly as they can and I like the usage of fewer there, by the way, yeah. instead of less. But yes. I mean, it's, you know, whatever editor in chief, but um, editor chief. <laughs> it's, it's a situation where maybe it's hubris, but I think that they will think kind of regardless of whoever is quarterback, that they can operate this offense in a similar fashion. Uh, and so I think they will want to continue to play fast. They will probably still want to rely on the three wide receivers that they have. Like I would say the wide receivers are the best part of their offense and they, they have to know that. Uh, I mean, that offensive line, which really propelled Ezekiel Elliott to, uh, you know, some great production early in his career, that offensive line is gone. Like it's just totally decimated. And so maybe they want to rely on the running game just a little bit more. Um, But I think for the most part, they still know, 
that with the wide receivers they have, and then I'd maybe even add like Dalton Schultz, who surprisingly is not a horrible tight end. Like maybe he's not great, but he's at least maybe like average, like with the passing game that they have, that those guys can maybe elevate Dalton and Dalton historically has, you know, the guys at the, uh, around the NFL podcast, um, have had sort of like the Dalton scale where like any quarterback above Dalton is someone who can uplift his teammates and anyone below Dalton uh, is someone who drags his teammates down. Uh, and Dalton is just sort of like that, that prime meridian line where, uh, you know, he himself is the guy who is impacted by his teammates or brought down by his teammates. We've seen Dalton have success in the past when he's had great receivers around him like when he's been in good circumstances Andy Dalton has had like amazingly like top five fantasy production so it's not to say that's what we're going to see this year because I I don't think Dalton has that has that skill set anymore the top 10 you know like finishing in the like the top 10 to top 12 on a per game basis from here on out I I think that's possible um, but I do think like the astronomical heights we saw from Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb, especially Cooper, who was uh, getting a lot of yards without a ton of uh, of market share. Uh, I think those are gone. Like you have to adjust the wide receivers down significantly and that whole passing offense significantly because even though they want to run the same offense with Andy Dalton, it's just going to be far less efficient. Uh, and I think what that will mean is that even if they want to rely on the running game just a little bit more. And so you might think like, okay, the one guy who might benefit from this is Ezekiel Elliott. He might benefit in the sense that maybe he gets more yards, but I think he's going to have far fewer goal line opportunities because that offense just isn't going to be as good. So maybe it actually ends up still even being a little bit of a drag down for Ezekiel Elliott in the touchdown department, even if thinking of this from the prop betting perspective, even if it means that he might have more carries per game and maybe more rushing yards per game. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a it's an interesting situation because they've been playing such like strange football in a way like you mentioning they're guys who are putting up monster numbers despite getting lower share they've been at set this insane pace they've been playing multiple games by down 20 something points so it's one of those things where even if Dak was still the quarterback, there's there's things that were going to shift. There were things that were going to change. But now that there's been a quarterback change, we can attribute it all to the quarterback change, even though these things were going to happen yeah. anyway. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing I would say to look out for, for anyone who's digesting whatever happens this weekend or whatever happens future weekends, is everyone's going to put it all on the Andy Dalton change if the offense plays slower or if they stall or if they do whatever, where you know I still would say going forward, maybe projected somewhere in between don't just don't just extend yeah. out what happens this weekend for the rest of the season what do you think is a reasonable projection for Andy Dalton in passing yards this week so we recorded the uh the week six fantasy flex uh at fantasy labs and uh on that show each week Sean Corner you know kind of posits different props and so one line that he set was Andy Dalton passing yardage and I think he said it maybe around 270 or 275 or or something like that uh i more optimistically have that around 284 although i'll just say like and that's my my first pass at it kind of early in the week um i would say like 
that yeah. that feels a little bit high but at the same time i still think the cowboys are going to play with pace uh and so maybe that number actually is pretty decent what i don't know if you've done projections this early in yeah, the yeah yeah i'm looking i'm looking at our projections i mean i think it is more in the 280 range um hmm. i mean the problem here but i could see i mean i would definitely know to to skew down on this because there are lots of things being rolled into these projections that aren't looking at who the quarterback is. They're just looking at trailing numbers right. for the team. So, I mean, part of it is the quarterback, part of it is the wide receivers and how we judge the wide receivers was based upon how they performed with, um, with Dak also. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, so if anything, our projections very often when you're substituting in a new quarterback, there's not as much of a change as you would think, which I think generally is probably a sharp way to think about it, but they're probably, but sometimes there isn't enough. So I I don't know. I I think that line is pretty strong from, from Sean. I don't know which direction I would necessarily go on this. The problem is I'm not as high on the Cardinals offense. At least I haven't been this season as others. So they could get into some sort of game script where they're able to, to, to 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 ratchet things down a bit in this in this game, so I think that would be the the outside possibility that maybe people aren't really uh, thinking about. Yeah, I I think that's right. Like shooting from the hip, like the two eighty four two eighty five number that I came up with early in the week. Like I'm kind of fine with that, but I know like I probably need to go back in and adjust that down a little bit. Yeah, well, that's the that's the beauty. You can just change a few assumptions, and boom, your very scientific process comes out with. <laughs> With the new, it's with the, the least scientific process masquerading <laughs> as uh, a pseudoscientific process that anyone could have well at least you're not you're not like me and masquerading as an actual data scientist out there in, in the world so uh, i i appreciate I, I appreciate that all right well i'm gonna wrap up here thank you matt so much for everything uh follow follow him on twitter matt f the oracle um, you know, you can change that if you want to going forward. Okay. You know, a, a couple of things before we, before we get out of the show. <laughs> okay. Fine. One, let's keep, let's, and this let's get is actually, it. this All is right. good advice. So as, as bad as, or as soft as we think the market might be for player props, there's even yeah. like an extension of that market, which is even softer, which is fantasy point player props. Just think of the mm-hmm. bookmakers. Like they think they already think that people who bet on props are just fantasy nerds and they don't really worry about uh, the, the, like the lines that they're putting out there. Like that's like even one more step removed. They can't even, they don't even know how to calculate fantasy points. That's just something that they're not even thinking about. So these lines yeah. are so bad. So I would say like DraftKings Sportsbook offers fantasy point props. FanDuel offers fantasy point props. One of the most profitable things you could probably do is just, you know, uh, oh, by the way, going to get in the, another plug here. So you could subscribe to Fantasy Labs and you could just look at the projections within our models. And then at any point where you see a discrepancy of, I'd say at least one and a half or two points, just bet that, right? So like fantasy point props, that market is extremely soft. Uh, and you know, there are a lot of excellent projections out there that you can get from fantasy labs or from you guys, you know, wherever you can, you can find projections. And I would say that market is very exploitable right now. That's one number two. Okay. Look, the name on Twitter, you know, it's, it's, uh, in reference to, uh, the league because there is the, the character in the pilot episode, Matt Friedman, the Oracle. The thing is 
all of these other Matt Friedmans out there have already, and that was the case even then, they've gobbled up all of the, the appropriate <laughs> names. I can't, I can't go Matthew Friedman. I can't go Matt Friedman. Right. I can't go Friedman Matt. What about double underscore? I can't, I can't double go underscore. Friedman Matt. I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put underscores in this uh, whole underscore <laughs> Kev. I'm not going to do that. Okay. Uh, and, and so there's a question like, do I go like Friedman football? Do I, Friedman NFL? Like what, what do I do? NFL is the worst. Don't do that. I, Sorry. I so Apologies like, to anyone who has NFL in their name. I know. So I know like, what, lots, what, do I, yeah. what do I do? So I'm just, whatever. Matt F. The Oracle, I'm just going to ride it until I come up with a better alternative. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't really matter, of course, but it's, it's not, it's, 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 it's similar to the Adam Levitan. I'm not going to change my, my, uh, my avatar, uh, despite the fact that I'm like on video all the time and everyone knows that I don't look like my, my, my avatar anymore. But, uh, anyway, there's had to, had to get a little, little, uh, dig in there and I, it allowed you to get a second plug, which I normally only allow one plug per show. So you, you got a second one there. Congrats there. Um, uh, anyway, so Matt F the Oracle on Twitter, editor in chief of fantasy labs, uh, listen to the podcast. I should mention that also. You guys are, are podcasting. I love your guys' podcast. I love hearing the dynamic between you and Sean and Raybon and everyone else over there. So thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fun talk, and I'll definitely be calling on you in the future for, for, for more takes. So I appreciate the time, Matt. All right. Uh, always a good time talking. 